Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the superseding indictments of Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, with three new charges bringing the total to 40 counts. We'll discuss how the new charges could be easily understood by jurors, in particular pro-Trump jurors in Florida, that the boss asking underlings to delete tapes is a no-no. Joining us to assess whether these new charges could delay a trial that has already been pushed back to May is Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center for National Security at Fordham Law School. She is a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the CNS Sufan Group Morning Brief and the Aeon Cyber Brief, the author of Rogue Justice, The Making of a Security State. Her latest book is Subtle Tools, the dismantling of American democracy from the war on terror to Donald Trump. Then we'll get an update on Ukraine's counteroffensive underway and discuss the vulnerability that large formations of men and armor have to Russian air power since the promised F-16s won't come for a year and we'll question whether the US and NATO really want Ukraine to win since these series of delays in sending weapons could eventually lead to a Russian victory. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Then finally, we'll look into Justice Alito's defiant response to the Senate's passage of a bill that would require the Supreme Court to adopt a code of conduct. Alito was interviewed in the Wall Street Journal by David Rivkin, who is with a law firm that is defending billionaires in a case before the Supreme Court that could decide whether a wealth tax is constitutional. Joining us is Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as the deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Karen Greenberg, the Director of the Centre on National Security at Fordham Law School. She's a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the CNS Sufan Group Morning Brief and the Aeon Cyber Brief. She's also the author of Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, and her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Greenberg. Thank you so much for having me. It's very nice to be here. Well, thanks, Karen. And 
What do you make of this fact now that Trump was already facing 37 criminal charges in the Mar-a-Lago documents case? And then on Thursday, when everybody was expecting that uh, Jack Smith might announce another indictment for the January 6th insurrection, he then surprised everybody with three more superseding indictments for Trump and other defendants in the document case, bringing the total now up to 40 charges. So a bit of a surprise, um, but what do you think's going on with Jack Smith? Because there's a concern that, of course, this will delay uh, this trial, uh, which has already been pushed back by uh, U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon, who appears to have a bias towards Trump. So what do you think's going on with Jack Smith why did he make this I actually, bold choice? I, I actually, I think this this superseding indictment is actually very important, and for a number of reasons, which we can go into, um, because it it raises the stakes. It adds a number of specifics about just what crimes were committed, um, and I think that much of this has may have to do with thinking about a pro-Trump jurors and what it will take to convince them that Trump committed a crime. Um, and so when you really look at what these new uh, the, these new charges are, they are, um, you know, I see them from the point of view of I've been trying to see them from the point of view of a jury, which is, number one, that Trump lied about knowing that he couldn't declassify documents, that knowing documents were classified. So that's actually something they can put out there. Also, I think the idea of talking about, you know, one of the, the member about waving around the documents. They now, you know, have specifics about what that document was and that it actually existed. And it was about plans for attacking Iran, a a military document that had been drawn up. Um, So I think there are a number of things here that that would be pitched towards convincing a juror, even a juror who tended to be for Trump or was, you know, blatantly for Trump. Um, that that lying had gone on, that laws had been violated. And I think so I think these new charges are actually somewhat um, dispositive in, in that regard. So the, the, particularly the uh, document, which was top secret, no form, which is about as secret as it get, and particularly yeah. a document talking about attacking another country, uh, could not be more secret. You're saying that this is going to bolster the Espionage Act charges against Trump because they'll be able to play the audio tape of Trump talking to, uh, I think it was an author of a book and a bunch of his sycophantic aides. And then they'd contrast that, showing the jury Trump's Fox News appearance, denying any such a document existed, that there were only news clippings. That's right. And I I think that's actually important. And so that's how I I read part of what's going um, on here. I also think the... um, the attempt to get, you know, they have this um, employee who they have not named, who has, um, they've been talking to, uh, Jack Smith and his team, who said that he was given orders to destroy uh, the um, this uh, footage from the security cameras of moving boxes um, and trying to, you know, conceal or destroy evidence. Um, is a crime, and I say in a in a trial, and I think that that actual also will play to the jury. Um, and the idea of doing of of you know doing this after the materials had been subpoenaed by the DOJ 
all of this if you see it from the point of view of a jury and you know the the judge will read them the law and tell them what the law is um that you can't you know you that you can't do this you you first of all can't destroy uh or conceal official documents and you can't tamper with destroy or conceal um um evidence in a trial and i i think i think all of that will resonate um with the jury uh in a in a trial setting so i i think this is actually a very important uh, moment in the case. Um, now, to your your other question about, you know, we were all expecting that there would be some kind of charge in the January um, in the January sixth case. Yeah, I think we were all surprised and I think a little disappointed um, because everything seems to be taking just so long, and time is of the essence. But I I do still think this was a very important moment in the documents case. So this fellow referred to as employee four actually turns out to be an IT worker, Yusil Tavares. And yeah. what we know from these uh, recent indictments is that essentially the Oliveira, uh, who is uh, the maintenance guy, property manager at Mar-a-Lago, he's, he's actually going to be arraigned on Monday in Florida. Um, yeah. But they, excuse me, they became suspicious of him, seeing him move uh, documents along with Walton Outer. And on June the 2nd of 2022, um, federal uh, prosecutors and agents visited Mar-a-Lago to recover classified documents in response to a grand jury subpoena. Uh, and they were basically given the runaround. In fact, de Oliveira couldn't find the keys to the storage room and they had to cut the lock. And he wasn't obviously wasn't being helpful. But then Trump's legal team did hand over a sealed envelope with 38 classified documents, um, but they wouldn't let the FBI and the prosecutors look at the documents. And then the very next day, June the 3rd, de Oliveira is on camera loading at least one box into the SUV that went on to Bedminster, New Jersey, and that presumably contained the top-secret no-form document. So... Yeah. It looks as if, you know, just based on the indictments, which are pretty thorough, they've got actual dialogue in there, you know. So no, I know, it's amazing. I, th yeah. I think they've got a it's solid actually, case. Yeah. Right, and it, but, you know, we keep saying that about all of these uh, Trump things, and so his the, the plan of delaying, no matter what the increasingly se seemingly, like, uh, in, you know, the increasing amount of evidence against him, it doesn't matter because he keeps trying to delay and delay and delay, basically with the idea that if he could delay until he gets elected president, this is in his head, of course, um, then he can make all of this go away. And so so it's really a battle between this, this escalating charges um, and the, the, the clock. Um, the, you know, one of the things that this, um, the, these new charges, you know, it ends with saying this should not make any delay in the trial. It should still start in May of 2024, which is when it's scheduled for. Um, this is, of course, the, the government wanted it for December of 2023, um, but the judge is, is so far, you know, putting it at May 2024. So, I mean, time, time is very much baked into the narrative. Of, of this trial and the other trials, including, you know, what happens with January 6th and that indictment, if there is one. So it's not unlikely, though, that the judge, Aileen Cannon, uh, will delay it further, right? Because of, first of all, Walton Outer and Oliveira 
their lawyers are being paid for by Trump, right? Yeah. And if you read the indictments, the language, you know, questioning who's loyal and who's not loyal is total mob language. So you, the question is how how dumb is this guy? I don't mean to be unkind to him, but my God, he's, he's got to know that he's in trouble, right? Both Walton yeah. and, and the Oliveira, but <laughs> they have Trump lawyers, which shows you that they're in, still in the pocket of Trump. Yeah, uh, yeah. On the on the other hand, as these charges, you know, mount, the potential penalties get very high. And at some point, if the if the trial does stay till till May and it isn't moved, you know, they're going to have to make a calculation in their head about whether or not they're willing to, you know, face this trial or um, and, and what Trump's political prospects are. So, no, even with you know their them their lawyers being paid and and other things. Um, you know, that's, that's how these cases go. And this is what the, the government uses to exert some kind of pressure to get people um, to turn. So um, I'm, I'm, we'll see what happens. But this is a lot of a potential um, time in prison and not to mention, you know, um, costs. Um, so I just, I, I, I'm not so sure that it's, well, maybe I'm just have rose-colored glasses, but it looks to me like this is proceeding in a way that is putting more and more pressure, particularly as this other employee now has come out and said, you know, De Oliveira told me to destroy the evidence, to destroy the security uh, camera footage. That's a that's a very big deal, <laughs> and um, I don't think we should minimize it. Um, and remember that you know part of this case is built upon conspiracy charges, right? Um, and that also adds penalties. Um, and, and you know, I, I, what they're trying to do is exert as much pressure as possible. And I think they're doing it in a way that is very attentive to um, getting, um, putting Trump in, in, it's really Trump thereafter. And we know that. And it's all sort of going down that road of more and more and more pressure to break away these loyal, um, these loyal um, aides. Yeah. Well, I think the point that you're making, Karen, is that these charges should be very accessible to the lay person. That it's just a no-no okay. to destroy, particularly uh, surveillance footage, and and they've got so much detail in there, it's hard to escape. Right, right. So, and not that, just not just a lay person, but a pro-Trump lay person. Right, <laughs> right. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a high bar. I understand. Yeah, uh, but but you you may have a pro-Trump judge there with Arlene Cannon. She's already displayed that earlier on uh, with the special master case when initially it, oh, with yeah. the documents when it, when she got slapped down by the Eleventh Circuit. So, assuming that she finds a way to delay this uh, as Trump wants, it looks as though we will be getting an indictment soon on the January sixth and. I suspect that that could be quite fast track, couldn't it? That could be tried even earlier than uh, than the Mar-a-Lago documents case, couldn't it? In, in theory, it could be. Um, what you want to hope for in this indictment, when when it comes down, is that there is a a tremendous amount of detail in it, um, and that you know they've sort of tied up the knots and 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 done their homework, as we know they have with the many people that they've interviewed um, for that for that case. Um, and don't forget the Georgia case, right? I think the Georgia case, which, you know, we were told we would see movement in the Georgia case in July, which, you know, we're still sort of waiting to see what's going to happen there is a very serious 
um, case. And so I think, yeah, I think a lot of this could happen quickly, but it's going to take some um, <laughs> some some real will and energy and aggressiveness um, on the part of the Department of Justice that has embraced the notion of, um, you know, we want to do this by the book and we want to make sure we cover all our, you know, cross our uh, T's and dot our I's. And we want to, you know, there's been this kind of, and the public is sort of getting very nervous about this timetable and putting the pressure in this case on the department of, of justice. So um, it could happen quickly. Um, cases don't necessarily, you know, trials take a long time to mount and a long time to, to bring about, but, um, but it could go faster than this because, you know, as you pointed out, the particular problems with the judge. So just in closing then, uh, Karen Greenberg, um, the Iowa GOP had their annual, had their uh, Lincoln dinner on Friday night at which 13 of the Republican hopefuls, including Donald Trump, who essentially was the keynote speech, they yeah. all made their pitches. But uh, the more int- most interesting one actually came from Will Hurd, a congressman from Texas, yeah. former CIA officer who uh, is African-American, he said, one of the things we need in our elected leaders is for them to tell the truth. Donald Trump is not running to make America great again. Donald Trump is not running for president to represent the people that voted for him in 2016 or in 2020. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And of course, the audience erupted into boos. But it's out there, right? <laughs> Trump was there, so he was in the back room probably, but at least he heard it. So uh, do you think there's going to be more talk like this? Yes, I do. And I think what's interesting about it is what you're seeing around Trump is a conversion of some of the narratives that are used by Democrats, right, against Trump by the candidates that are running against Trump, you know, uh, in the primaries, uh, ostensibly. And I think that's actually an important thing that they sort of narrative takeaway of what, what actually is on his mind, which is, you know, moving on from any kind of charges at all by being the candidate and then being uh, the president again in his mind. Um, his, if it gets into the Republican um, narrative as well in terms of the upcoming election, I think that that really changes it isolates Trump in a way and puts him in a category and we don't want to call this bipartisan because of course it's not. And yet it has, it takes on a different kind of legitimacy across the board. Well, Karen Greenberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. She's a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the editor-in-chief of the CNS Sufan Group Morning Brief and the Aon Cyber Brief. And she's the author of Rogue Justice, The Making of of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on Ukraine's counteroffensive underway and discuss the vulnerability that large formations of armor have to Russian air power since the promised F-16s won't come for a year. And we'll question whether the U.S. and NATO really want Ukraine to win.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Berlin is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmage. Great to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And there's concerns now being expressed by Poland's Prime Minister that more than 100 Wagner Group mercenaries have moved towards the Sulwaki Corridor, which is a small stretch of land, which is NATO territory, separating the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad from Belarus uh, and giving the Baltic states a direct land corridor into Poland. Uh, we know that be- that the Belarusian dictator, on a number of occasions, has used refugees. There have been 6, 16,000 attempts of migrants to cross the border uh, into Poland, right in that corridor, and there's always been a concern that Russia's ambi- ambition would be to extend a land corridor into Kaliningrad from Belarus because Kaliningrad is obviously landlocked uh, between NATO countries. So do you see this as a serious... Uh, it's what the Polish Prime Minister calls a hybrid attack attempt by Russia on Polish territory as opposed to an overt military attack. But how concerned are you about this? Well, I think the the, the Polish statement seemed to me a bit overblown. Obviously, no country would want to have Wagner troops in close vicinity, and that's, you know, the kind of menace that Putin is trying to project uh, toward Poland, uh, which he sees as a kind of arch uh, enemy of uh, of Russia's. But it's worth noting that um, the consuming task of the Russian military over the last several months was the taking of the city of Bakhmut, which they did at enormous cost, a city of 70,000 people of, of unclear strategic value uh, to Russia. And at the moment, uh, Russia is fending off uh, not a swift, but a steady uh, and significant counteroffensive uh, on the part of Ukraine. So I think it would be accurate to say that Russia has its hands full uh, with the war that it's so grievously mismanaged uh, in Ukraine. And there's very, very remote or non-existent possibility that Russia will ex- seek to extend that war, especially to any country that's a NATO member, as, as Poland is. So Putin has been hosting African leaders, uh, but just 17 heads of African states showed up in St. Petersburg in the last few days. Um, that's more than that's less than half of the 43 heads of state that attended the 2019 conference. Interesting enough, at the Africa summit, Putin was introduced by the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, who himself is hardly a man of God since he's has such a bloodthirsty support for Putin's war against Ukraine. But in the introduction, he referred to Putin as Vladimir Vasilievich, which, of course, is the title for uh, Ivan the Terrible. And (laughs) so uh, what do you make of his attempts uh, to win the African states over, promising them free grain at the same time, essentially closing off the Black Sea uh, grain uh, routes? Well, I think that the St. Petersburg Forum uh, was, as, as many of these fora are, not just on Russia's part, but was largely theatrical, uh, and it didn't deliver much either for Russia or for the African 
countries that is, that attended, um, it's probably crucial to note here that what Russia is pursuing in, in Africa uh, is in part an argument about the war, an argument about the malign role of the United States and what you could think of as perhaps the conventional diplomacy, but much more what Russia is seeking in Africa is something that it's going to try to achieve through very hard forms of leverage. You mentioned Wagner uh, earlier. You know, Wagner troops are actually poised now to move into Niger, which has just uh, undergone uh, a coup d'état, and they've been expanding their presence uh, in the Sahel. And most importantly, uh, Putin is going to use his leverage over Ukrainian grain to force up prices uh, of grain and food uh, in Africa, and he's going to use the leverage that he has in that regard uh, to get the kinds of, um, I don't know, concessions, deals, uh, agreements that he can, uh, that he can get. So the diplomacy and the kind of playing nice and the cultural diplomacy is a sideshow. Um, what Putin is doing is trying to bolster his hard power, uh, in Africa and, you know, his war on Ukrainian grain is a cynical, uh, part of that story, but an important part of that story. So let's turn to the war in Ukraine in its 521st day and, there's some reports now that indicate that perhaps the Ukrainian counteroffensive is ramping up a little bit. So far, the attacks have been at a battalion level or even lower against heavily fortified Russian positions with lots of layers of minefields. But now there's some suggestion that brigade levels may be ready to punch holes through these defenses. But the real problem that the Ukrainians have is the lack of air support. And the Russians have been bombing uh, the Ukrainian positions using uh, bombers and also using attack helicopters. And the Ukrainians just simply don't have the air power to do anything about it. So presumably, if they were to make breakthrough in large numbers with lots of, uh, of you know, supply chains of vehicles and all of the Western armor that's been supplied, they'd be vulnerable to Russian air power, wouldn't they? Well, that seems to me like a very accurate uh, overview of the uh, of the situation. There are always contingencies and variables in these kinds of uh, situations. And so, you know, there may be good fortune on the Ukrainian side that's a little bit difficult to anticipate at the present moment. But uh, this imbalance in air power is, as, 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 you, as you point out, Ian, is a, is a crucial factor. Uh, and it seems that what Ukraine is pursuing, you know, if you take a step back and look at the big picture, is uh, an attempt to attrit Russian forces over a very long period of time. And the idea that the 35,000 or so soldiers that they mustered for the counteroffensive could seriously turn the war, which was put forward before the counteroffensive began, uh, that idea may have been somewhat fanciful uh, to begin with. But it doesn't mean that what Ukraine is doing is uh, you know, not sensible militarily and not prone uh, to pay dividends. It's just going to be slow grinding uh, and uh, and difficult. So what's then happening with the supply of weapons, which for the longest time since this war began, the West, uh, the US and NATO have, have set red lines and saying, no, no, you can't have this weapon system, you can't have tanks, and then months later they relent and agree to let Ukrainians have tanks. And the same thing with air power, and they've eventually relented on F-16s, but they won't arrive for about a year, at least they won't be ready in a year. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians 
have access to big 29s apparently they can upgrade them an israeli company can upgrade them very quickly and make them just as competitive as a f-16 and that they have them the the, the poles and and the slovenians have, have given them to them so what's the problem here i mean I've been in touch with Badanov's people, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, and they're beginning to wonder whether the U.S. and NATO really want Ukraine to win this war or, or to win big. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's uh, the case. You know, I think that uh, the White House's position sort of is what it is on paper. What it is, it is what they say it is. That they want to give maximum support to Ukraine. They want to see Ukraine achieve maximum uh, objectives on the battlefield uh, and return either to pre-February 24th borders or uh, ideally to the borders that were there uh, of Ukraine in, in 2014. I think that the fact of the matter on the Western side is that this is very much a work in progress, that there are all kinds of complicated procurement issues. There's complicated matters of uh, domestic politics where different parties and different you know, sort of factions have uh, different views about how fast uh, to go, and uh, it's just been haphazard. If we would take the lid off the Russian side of the war and look at a lot of issues there, we would find it very haphazard uh, as well. So it's not uniquely haphazard, but it is haphazard, and you know I agree it's been costly. Um, you know I think that uh, if we return to the very beginning of the war, we know that the assessments were that Ukraine was going to lose in a couple of days. That, of course, changed, and maybe there was a degree of over-optimism in September and October of 2022. Um, but, um, you know, where we are now is 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 not the ideal uh, place, either in terms of ammunition, air power, uh, air defenses, uh, etc. And uh, the way I would put it on the Western side is that the Western side has to remember that despite all the progress that's been made on Ukraine's part, since the beginning of the war, this is still a war that Ukraine can lose. Uh, and so, you know, there still has to be that high degree of political urgency. Uh, and that's a part of the story as well. A little bit of sitting on one's laurels, that's a part of this story. But a lot of it, I think, is just that haphazardness, haphazardness of military issues, the haphazardness of domestic politics. And of course, the coalition behind Ukraine is many, many different countries, each of which have different weapon systems, different things that they're willing to commit, different red lines, uh, et cetera. So it's it's super complicated, and that complication, that, that, that complexity slows things down. But you've just suggested something, uh, Michael, which is, I think, quite alarming but quite realistic. Ukraine could lose. I mean, the Russians, are, even though Ukraine is making some progress around Zaporizhia and they're heading for Melitopol in order to cut Crimea off and cut off the Sea of Azov link between the, the Donbass and Crimea, then nevertheless, there's a basic asymmetry here that the Ukrainians are not able to attack Russian territory, whereas the Russians are able to destroy Ukraine's infrastructure. They've just shut down their grain export ability. So that's been the, the asymmetry all along, has it not? And it's not inconceivable that this offensive could peter out, particularly with the propensity of Russian air power, and you're back to what? What would you end up with? Right. Well, the way I would look at it is to understand the constraints on both sides of the equation. I think you've laid out some of the crucial constraints that Ukraine faces. And to 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 develop the argument, uh, Russia occupies roughly 20% of Ukrainian 
uh, territory. A lot of Ukraine's richest agricultural land has been mined and is sort of being fought over uh, in the counteroffensive. There have been regular strikes across the cities of Ukraine, as we're all well aware, over the last couple of weeks and months and, and, and throughout the war. Uh, and Russia has been able to a degree, to a large degree, uh, to strangle the Ukrainian economy. And it's not just access to grain markets, it's insurance, uh, it's investment, uh, it's the demographics of Ukraine with all the people who have been forced to leave their homes as a, as, as a, as a consequence of the war. All of that is, is, is pretty dire. Uh, and that paints a fairly bleak picture uh, of where the war is and where the war may be heading. Uh, it's equally important to emphasize the constraints on the Russian side. I think what's now out of Russia's grasp for the foreseeable future, unless they would engage in a massive, massive mobilization campaign, it's beyond Russia's grasp to take any of Ukraine's cities. They can menace them, they can bomb from the air, but Odessa, Kharkiv, Chernigov, Kiev, uh, all these cities uh, are going to be out of Russia's grasp. And if they can't take these cities, they're not going to be able to control the politics of Ukraine, which is the crucial war aim on the Russian side. So Ukraine is going to struggle uh, under the conditions of the war. Uh, and that's very clear. And Russia is unable to achieve its objectives. That's sort of equally uh, clear. And that's the curious impasse that is the war uh, at the at the present moment. I don't think any of that amounts to Ukraine losing outright, although I said that that's still a possibility and we need to remember that uh, to sort of enhance our own uh, urgency when we think about this issue. Uh, but none of it also amounts to Russia uh, winning. But, Michael, there's another asymmetry, and that is that Ukraine has a third of the population base that Russia has. And the Ukrainians uh, have lost a lot of men. We don't know how many estimates are, they've, are that they've lost uh, 40,000 civilians. They may have lost as many as 100,000 killed and wounded on the battlefield. Compared to Russia, maybe as high as 300,000. But it seems that the Russians are less concerned about their casualties than the Ukrainians are. Well, uh, those numbers, are, of course, are all, uh, you know, sort of accurate and true. But there is a, you know, of the many asymmetries that we're discussing, you know, after the war began, immediately after the war began, what Ukraine did was to mobilize a bunch of Ukrainian society. And you've had huge numbers of people volunteer, sometimes from abroad and, 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 and of course, throughout Ukraine, uh, volunteer to fight in the, in the war. So in a way, the problem that Ukraine faces is not a manpower problem. They have you know, sort of willing people to, to, to fight this war in huge uh, numbers, and that's not at all a political issue. The shortages on the Ukrainian side are more sort of ammunition, different kinds of equipment, you know, sort of material, uh, etc. In theory, that's a soluble problem uh, if the, con the countries supporting Ukraine have enough commitment to carry through on, uh, uh, on what they would like to see happen uh, in, uh, in the war. Russia has a huge population, 140 million people. It had at the beginning of the war uh, a very big military. It's got a lot of industrial capacity and its economy is, you know, sort of doing as well as Putin needs to perpetuate the war uh, and even to spend more on the war. But Russia has a huge manpower problem and they could solve the problem by mobilizing. But that's been politically very, very sensitive uh, for Putin. It's a step that he hasn't been willing to take since the September 2022 uh, mobilization. So. Uh, you know, there are those asymmetries that you mentioned. Ukraine is smaller than Russia. Russia has a bigger economy, bigger population. But on the battlefields, uh, it's interestingly, it's, it's Russia that faces the manpower 
uh, problem. And of course, we saw the mutiny that occurred uh, in June in Russia, which was based on the grievances and discontents of Russian soldiers at the front in part. Uh, and that's maybe another reason why Putin is reluctant to mobilize. Well, incidentally, Michael, the, the Ukrainian thrust west of Zaporizhia, where there, it's a brigade-level thrust, is tearing through the Russian defenses because the units, the Russian units there were headed by General Popov, who was one of the generals who went public saying that the Russian Ministry of Defense were abandoning them and weren't taking care of them, and he got fired. So that would indicate some serious morale problems within the Russian ranks. Yeah, I mean, the mismanagement of this war on the Russian side is spectacular. We're sort of familiar with it from the very first few months, you know, when Russia got really bogged down uh, around Kiev and, and sort of invaded all this territory and then lost it very precipitously. Uh, I think we may have forgotten a little bit about this mismanagement because it hasn't been as visible in the last couple of months, but it does resonate with those personnel issues. You have Prigozhin at the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg glad-handing people, but he's not at the front uh, anymore. And, you know, for all of his craziness, he was a fairly effective battlefield uh, figure. Uh, and the people who are in charge of the war, Gerasimov and, and Shoigu, uh, are incompetent, uh, mediocre. Uh, they're paper pushers, uh, in effect. So Putin is suffering from a regime in which loyalty trumps everything else, uh, and competence is in uh, short supply. Uh, and so there, too, when you think of asymmetries, you know, a lot of the military leadership on the Ukrainian side to date has been superior, more focused, more competent, uh, more effective. Uh, and, you know, Russia has a lot of resources, but it tends to use them uh, unwisely. So that asymmetry is another one of our asymmetries, and that's that's pretty significant. Well, Michael Kimmage, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Ian, it's always a great pleasure. Well, thank you, Mark. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and the department chair at the Catholic University of America and the chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Justice Alito's defiance response to the Senate's passage of a bill that required the Supreme Court to adopt a code of conduct. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Lisa, I wanted to uh, look into Justice Alito's defiant response to the Senate's passage of a bill that would require the Supreme Court to adopt a code of conduct. And Alito was interviewed in the Wall Street Journal by David Rifkin, who 
is, I understand, is with a law firm uh, called Baker Hostler that has a big tax case set to become before the Supreme Court. They could decide whether a wealth tax would be constitutional. And we know that Alito and Thomas and, and Gorsuch and, and the, most of them, in fact, on the ultra-conservative side, represent billionaires. That seems to be their, their priority. And Sheldon Whitehouse, who led the effort to get this ethics regime before out of the Senate, <clears throat> he's posted on social media that, that, that Rifkin was one of the two interviewers who wrote that they sat down with Alito for four hours in total over two sessions ending in early July, and that Rifkin is a part of an effort to block an investigation into Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, who's been literally handpicking all of these ultra-right-wing judges and and a lot of the federal judiciary, including the judge down there in Florida who's hearing Trump's case. So I find that extraordinary. I mean, my God. He writes the, he has these two right-wing hacks write, do interview him for the Wall Street Journal, and one of them is with a law firm that has a huge case before the court on whether billionaires should pay the wealth tax. And guess which side he represents? The billionaires. Yeah, it really is extraordinary. I mean, it just it is uh, it just seems to be the case that Alito, despite the protestations in that op ed uh, with Dave Rivkin and one of the writers for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, that Alito is basically thumbing his nose at any restrictions. In fact, he, he asserts, in essence, that there's no need for the, the Senate to do anything because the justices already comply with a voluntary code. But as we saw from the tremendous reporting from ProPublica just a few weeks ago, that code has not stopped Alito himself from taking fabulous trips with super wealthy billionaires. Uh, for example, this uh, this salmon fishing, trophy fishing uh, effort up in Alaska, where Alito shamelessly just a few weeks ago wrote his own op-ed in for the Wall Street Journal, asserting that there just happened to be a, a spare seat on the private jet of Paul Singer, the guy who was uh, the billionaire who was bringing him to Alaska for this uh, salmon fishing event. And there's a picture of them, of uh, Alito with uh, Paul Singer. And the question that I pose and I suppose is, which is the trophy, you know, the fish or Alito? But that's not all. The person who coordinated that trip was none other than Leonard Leo, the very same Leonard Leo who you mentioned and uh, as uh, mentioned in Senator Whitehouse's tweet, um, it's uh, Leonard Leo who is the subject of um, a request for information by the Senate Judiciary Committee for information about his role in coordinating these trips and acting as a travel manager or a a matchmaker between billionaires and Supreme Court justices. Um, and so here you have David Rivkin, the lawyer who was on the letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee just this past week, attacking the power of the Senate to inquire into whether these judges are, are operating in good behavior under the Constitution and to find out more about these this travel agent role that Leonard Leo has been playing for years with the rich and powerful on the Supreme Court, including obviously most substantially Clarence Thomas himself, but also Alito. And now you have Rivkin sitting down for this, you know, so-called interview 
with Alito to do this puff piece in the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages. And as you mentioned, Rivkin has business before the court, and he has had business before the court. So as Senator Whitehouse said, uh, to cap it off, you know, what a shallow pool uh, this group of insiders is that surra has surrounded the court and, has, and is defending um, its lack of ethics, its, you know, tremendous breach of the public trust. Well, Lisa, there are 756 billionaires in the United States as of now. They live in 42 of the 50 states. And you have at least two justices on the Supreme Court who have made it clear that they serve the billionaires. That's their priority. And I guess you could also include Gorsuch along with uh, with Thomas and Alito. Because Gorsuch made a sweetheart deal with a big law firm to sell a, a hunting lodge. But more importantly, he auditioned for the Supreme Court on the so-called frozen truck driver's case where he was the only judge that wrote the opinion that the driver should have stayed with a rig that broke down in the, in the dead of winter and he should have froze to death rather than go seek help. So this is the kind of people that Leonard Leo has put on the Supreme Court. You're a veteran of the Senate Judiciary Committee and of the Justice Department. Has America's plutocracy or its right-wing plutocracy have they captured the Supreme Court? It certainly seems that way. There's no doubt in my mind that they've captured it. And and Alito himself is a case in point. Uh, that seat was the seat that Senator O'Connor had occupied for many years. Uh, when uh, she um, retired, initially, um, John Roberts was nominated to that seat. But then uh, William Rehnquist, who'd been the chief justice for a number of years, passed away. So George W. Bush swapped in uh, Roberts for that seat, and then he chose a lawyer, a Republican lawyer, sort of rock rib Republican uh, from Texas uh, to be the nominee, a woman uh, to be the nominee to replace Senator O'Connor. And Leo threw a fit. Leo attacked uh, that nomination, um, basically got her withdrawn and helped swap in Samuel Alito himself. So the debt between these two men you know, is longstanding and deep. And Alito is someone who is delivering on Leo's agenda, notwithstanding the statements that Alito made during his own Supreme Court nomination hearings. And so, you know, it really is extraordinary to have uh, these Supreme Court justices who've been appointed by Republican presidents so uh, seemingly in the pocket or beholden to um, being wined and dined and schmoozed and boozed by the some of the richest people on the planet, some of the richest people in history, people who do have an agenda before the court. Sometimes they have their own cases before the court or they're representing people um, who have cases before the court uh, in, the, in, the, in the case of Mr. Rivkin. But in other instances, they are funding the groups that are bringing the amicus briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, for example, another Leonard Leo group called the Judicial Education Project, which is now known as the 85 Fund and also has another alias because it's a big shell game. The other alias is the so-called Honest Elections Project. Um, that group has previously uh, paid Baker, Hus ba Baker Hustler um, David Rifkin's firm, millions of dollars uh, in fees um, for undescribed legal services. Um, and so it is a very small circle of people. Um, and it's not just the operatives that are visible, like Rivkin or Leonard Leo, it's the billionaires behind the scenes. For example, we didn't know until just two years ago that Leonard Leo had received a $1.6 billion trust, that's billion with a B, from a Chicago right-winger named Barry Side, 
um, to basically exert Barry's will from, you know, after he passes away for decades into the future to advance Leo's agenda for our courts, for our country to remake the law in the image of Leonard Leo. And that image is profoundly regressive, profoundly repressive. And it's one that most Americans are in deep disagreement with. And to describe his agenda, it is a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. Would you agree? I would. And the laissez-faire capitalism is, uh, as Nancy McLean so eloquently described in her book, Democracy in Chains, if you uh, kneecap the ability of government to take action, for example, on climate change, as uh, with the Supreme Court decision last year, a uh, year ago, in West Virginia versus EPA, where they said basically the Environmental Protection Agency didn't have authority to protect the environment, uh, to you know, uh, have a clean power plan, plan, plant, plan. Um, you know what happens is if government can't act, we're left we're left to the devices and power of corporations. That's how, that's how Charles Koch, who has also funded Leo and funded this effort, um, seek to put our democracy in chains. When democracy is enchained, corporations can get away with all sorts of things that harm not only our democracy and our freedoms, but also really harm our ability to thrive and the health of our planet. So Alito's argument in the Wall Street Journal says that there's no provision of the Constitution that gives them, the Congress, the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. If we're viewed as illegitimate, then disregard of our decisions becomes more acceptable and more popular. What, what is he saying there? Well, this is, a, this is a very new argument, again, by these radical right-wing uh, judges or politicians in black robes like uh, Sam Alito, where they're asserting that, that Congress has no power over the Supreme Court. It's absurd. Congress has set the authority of the Supreme Court, has, has set forth its discretionary power, um, has done over, this goes back centuries, more than 200 years. Uh, the first Congress, the second Congress, the third Congress in U.S. history have um, done a lot, have, have issued a lot of acts that affect the role of the Supreme Court, even uh, in even providing the quorum rules for the Supreme Court, meaning how many justices um, have to be present to take a case to uh, issue a ruling. Um, this, the Congress has also set the number of justices, have has increased it or decreased it over time, has set its jurisdiction. And certainly under our system of checks and balances that every student uh, in America who makes it through at least the eighth grade has heard of, that, you know, we have a system, and the court is not without checks and balances. One of those checks is that is a provision in Article 3 that they serve in good behavior. Well, clearly they cannot police themselves to serve in good behavior. And there's no doubt that Congress has deep and longstanding authority to impeach justices. If you can impeach a justice, the idea that you couldn't regulate them by uh, having them follow basic ethical rules that all other federal employees in all three branches otherwise comply with, it's an absurd argument. But it's not the first absurd argument. Uh, just to put an underscoring on this, Ian, it's genuinely shocking to me that we have a man sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court in Samuel Alito who can't read or won't read basic disclosure rules um, that have been around since 1978, have applied, have all justices other than um, other than Clarence Thomas and probably Scalia, but other than Thomas really currently have followed, which is uh, you can't count private jet travel as 
um, hospitality. That's been the rule for decades now. And we have now we have someone who claims he can't properly read that rule or at least has asserted a completely alternative version of that rule. But yet he's he is more than willing to arrogantly tell us that uh, that we cannot have Roe versus Wade, that we cannot have these core precedents that have been with us for decades, whether it's on labor rights, uh, whether it's on affirmative action, whether it's on choice, uh, possibly even whether um, we can have access to contraception contraceptive devices as American citizens. It's extraordinary that this guy, this political partisan, you know, tool who the Wall Street Journal page calls plain spoken, which is code for basically in your fight, in your face, that this guy who can't interpret a simple ethics code that already applies since 1978 is we're supposed to trust him with our rights and with rulings about, you know, substantial, deep, uh, significant constitutional issues that bear on our ability to bear children or not, our, our, our ability to decide our reproductive destiny. It's just astonishing. And and Alito's arrogance is almost uh, beyond the pale, except that uh, Clarence Thomas is there with him uh, outside the boundaries of ordinary ethics that any other judge in this country would feel bound by. And you were saying early that Bush, he originally chose Harriet Myers, right? Yes. And yep. she would have been like Sandra Day O'Connor. She would have been pro-choice, right? Well, it, presumably, you know, we don't mm. know. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's probably part of the reason behind the scenes for Leo that uh, for objecting to her was that she might have done what actually almost every other Republican appointee to the court has done since 1973, which is follow that legal precedent um, and not impose their own personal religious beliefs as law, as Alito wishes to do and as uh, Thomas wishes to do. So um, it could very well have been that plus other issues that they didn't think that she was going to be a sure vote the way they they were certain that Alito would be. So when Alito says in this Wall Street Journal article interviewed by these friendly people that one of whom has will have David Rifkin will have business before the court on this big taxation case set to become before the court that could decide whether a wealth tax is constitutional that's that's huge obviously the, the billionaires have a dog in that fight and they've got the greatest shill for billionaires in history in Leonard Leo. But when Alito says in the Wall Street Journal that if we're viewed as illegitimate, then disregard of our decisions becomes more acceptable and more popular. Isn't that already happening? It's happening with their decision to strike down Roe v. Wade, isn't it? It's massively that's, unpopular. That's right. You know, it was an interesting line in that piece of work that Rivkin stitched together with uh, Taranto. And one of the, you know, basically, he's trying to rationalize this notion that it's that it's our fault, that it's the people's fault that their decisions are disrespected, blaming sort of blaming the victims here, when in fact, it's the Supreme Court who that is going so far because it's been captured, uh, as Senator Whitehouse has described so eloquently and with such great documentation, because this court has been captured, because these uh, six uh, right-wing appointees are so willing to impose their personal views as law to strike down decades, decades of precedent in, in area after area, including Roe. That's why the people are responding to this court. And that's why this court right now has the lowest approval rating in the history that, you know, for decades of, of approval ratings of the court in terms of since that sort of polling has taken place. So they've trashed the reputation. And now Alito wants to try to reframe that as somehow that's, other, that's 
you know, other people's disrespect, whereas they have generated that disrespect for their actions. And let's not forget that there's another whistleblower who said that Alito was so chummy, so friendly with these right-wing evangelicals who had set upon capturing the court to change our um, this precedence around religious freedom into from a sword into a shield to strike down equality laws, to strike down the Affordable Care Act, that there was a, a previous leak, in essence, that it was is attributed to, to Alito himself, that the Hobby Lobby family, the ones that run the Hobby Lobby store who wanted to attack the Affordable Care Act for daring to require employers to ensure that their employees had access to contraceptives, for example, IUDs, that the Hobby Lobby family said was against their personal private religious beliefs as a corporation, I guess, um, that that somehow had to fall. That opinion leaked, leaked in part because of this um, group of very wealthy right-wing fundamentalists who targeted Alito to influence him and to try to secure information about um, this case. And they apparently succeeded, as the New York Times uh, documented and verified itself. Now, Alito denies that, but the reality is, is that Alito um, uh, also went on a fabulous, another fabulous trip to Jackson Hole with some of the folks who were trying to influence him. So, you know, he just he's trying to rationalize the public response to somehow fit his own very twisted narrative, in my personal view. But the fact is, is that this court has brought it on itself. The public condemnation is the result of them overreaching, of their arrogance, of their decision to set aside decades, decades of precedence that Americans rely upon in order to advance their own personal private views. And U.S. Senator Tina Smith, in response to Alito's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, said Justice Alito has no business policing women's private medical decisions. And just to close up, though, here in the last minute, Lisa, the decision from that woman in Colorado over her web design, she didn't even have a company. She lied about approaching clients who who were gay and wanted to have a gay marriage. It turned out that was a lie. The person that she mentioned was a straight man married for 15 years. They lied, they lied, they lied, and this became law by the Supreme Court of the United States. There's no recourse. I know that was Gorsuch's majority decision, but Alito and Thomas, of course, joined in it. Is there any recourse there? How could you change the law in that regard? to open the, open the doors to discrimination against gay people in this country. And it was based on a, on a tissue of lies. It's just extraordinary. You know, one of the longstanding, uh, you know, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, independent, whatever, one of the things you're taught as a lawyer, like first year of law school, is you have to have standing in a case, I meaning you have to have an actual harm uh, or you, you can have a past harm, but it's one that's likely to repeat itself in essence. So, um, you have a, a situation here where there was a, a person who came before the court and there's investigative reporting, as you, a, a, which is, as you point out, um, that there was not a case or controversy. It was a sort of hypothetical. Um, and this court was definitely willing to take on what, in essence, was a hypothetical about a person who didn't even have a website yet that she might want to turn down a gay couple. So it was just such a bold and, I think, grotesque embrace of bigotry dressed up as protecting our, her religious freedom for a theoretical business that was not actually offering those services. And as you point out, uh, one of the people that was specifically referenced wasn't even um, asking for services for like a, for a gay marriage. And so um, this court has done that, but that's not all. Last, last year, 
Alito issued a decision in a religious freedom case expanding um, prayer in schools uh, by by utterly stating false facts about what happened in that case, claiming this was just private prayer by a coach. It wasn't public. And there's documentary evidence that the dissenters on the Supreme Court put into the record of the U.S. Supreme Court of photos of the coach on the on the field in the public, you know, um, conducting prayers, which is, you know, inherently coercive to young people to have that sort of embrace of a particular religion by your coach, the person who decides whether you get to play the game or not, um, whether you sit the bench. And so Alito does not seem to be bothered, in my personal view, by facts or law. He's someone who, in my view, should not be a Supreme Court justice. I think he should be removed. I wish we had the votes to remove him. I would wholeheartedly support that. Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian, for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.